This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Ridge. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. David, you got the rare treat these days of interviewing an actor because uh, (laughs) the the SAG after strike continues, even as we're getting very good news on the WGA strike front. Um, But there are a handful of films that have interim agreements for which their actors can uh, do press. And so you got to talk to Trace Lissette about a small but very mighty movie and one that we really want to support called Monica. Um, Tell me about your conversation with Trace Lissette. Small but mighty. There's some deja vu there. (laughs) Maybe there is, though. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is the first actor we've had on the podcast since the actors went on strike. And I'm really happy it's Trace Lizette. Um, She's uh, the star of the film Monica, which premiered at last year's Venice Film Festival, was really well received um, and has had has had the path of many a a very small indie drama of late. Uh, It was acquired by IFC. It had a you know pretty robust rollout for what they can pull off uh, in the spring, and since then the film is you know just trying to find its way into the awards conversation. What makes this movie very unique is that Trace Lizette uh, is a trans actor playing a trans character. Uh, an openly trans performer has never been nominated for an Oscar, and both she and Patricia Clarkson, who play her mother, do really beautiful and worthy work in this movie. You know, Patricia Clarkson in a small but mighty movie as a, as a <laughs> indie tradition for the last 20 years, I would say. So that's another good sign. Indeed. Uh, in this film, she plays Lizette's mother. And the film follows Lizette's character, uh, who was essentially kicked out of her home as a teenager, uh, coming back for the first time in a very long time. Her mother has uh, dementia. She doesn't recognize her, who looked very different the last time she saw her. And, and it really movingly explores the way that they connect, not really through words, it's a very spare with dialogue, but it hits really hard. And Lizette has such presence, really, in every frame of this movie. It's a really quiet performance, but one that pecks a real punch. Well, as I imagine we'll talk about later this week on the Roundtable episode, it's an especially interesting season for IFC Films, which is putting out Monica as well as The Taste of Things, which is France's submission for international feature at the Oscars. So it'll be interesting to watch them push those two movies together, and maybe they're kind of an interesting combination for one studio to have. 
Yeah, well, one one thing we talk about is the nature of campaigning for a movie like this. Uh, she mentioned the campaign officially got off the ground about a week before we started recording. Um, not a lot of people necessarily noticed because, as we talked about with a small but mighty movie last year, there is a big gulf just in terms of visibility between those that have big campaign budgets and those that do not. And this is a movie that is really staying in the conversation uh, through the passion of its stars and through the quality of the movie and the fact that people want to support it. Uh, well, I'm excited to support it and to hear more about it. Let's listen to your conversation with Trace Lizette. Trace Lizette, you're here for the film Monica, and we should establish up front that the film has uh, an interim agreement from SAG-AFTRA, of which you are a member. So just to start kind of broadly, as an actor who is, as of this recording, on strike, promoting the film you know, within the guild's bounds? Like, how, how has that felt? How, how has your experience been over these last few months? Oh, it's been a roller coaster for me. Um, I found acting in my mid-20s and um, didn't get my first TV credit until 10 years ago. So it's it's kind of taken me this long to get the shot to finally lead a film. You know, I haven't, I haven't led a series yet. Um, so this was really my first shot. And then to have it coincide with the strike has been complicated. Um, Mm -hmm. To have, you know, arguably the biggest moment of your career, this hard-fought win kind of coincide with a long overdue bargaining of, you know, our rights and what is deserved as actors as a whole. It's just complicated. So it's it's been this weird duality of this really cool thing that I've been waiting to kind of, showcase to the world and, and just like, I don't know, maybe finally feel some fruits of this journey. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the same time, having it be stunted a little or muted by what's going on with negotiations and all that. It's just been, it's been challenging. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I can imagine. And especially for a film that um, first of all, I, I really love this movie. I really connected to it. Um, I think a lot of queer people who have, yeah. if they have not seen it, will will connect to it. Um, but it's a small movie. It's a really intimate movie, and it's the kind of movie that that needs that sort of push. So I'm I'm really glad you're here. You're able to do things like this. I was reading the back when you took this movie to Venice, and this movie got a really you know amazing standing ovation. You reacted with a kind of feeling of like, well, what what does this mean for this movie, for me? What comes next? Mm-hmm. And obviously a lot has happened in this industry since then, but the film also got great reviews, was released. So how, in terms of those kinds of questions, like, have you found any answers? Are you still asking yourself those kinds of things? The answers uh, seem to be trickling in slowly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so weird how delayed everything is in this business. Yep. For most working actors, you know, granted, there's some people that just actually do get it overnight or maybe their journey is just different. But for, I think for most working actors who bounce around from gig to gig, co-star to co-star to guest star to recurring or whatever, um, small roles building up to whatever fruitful career I think you're always wondering, when do I get to feel safe? And and then when you're trans, you come from a life and you come from a life of survival. 
and that extra layer, I guess, of of struggle, I would say, you're always wondering, when do I get to feel safe? Um, uh-huh. For me, it's, it's it really is about survival. It's, it's keeping my health insurance. Um, uh-huh. It's wanting to know that maybe I'll get to think about buying a house someday as I, as I, as I turn uh-huh. 42 next month. Like, do I ever, do I ever get to dream about having a house and a family and, you know, taking care of my mom. And so for me, it is, it is very much survival based, you know, as somebody who grew up poor, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, lower, lower middle-class poor, um, single mother, no father in the picture, um, didn't go to college. You know, I, I financed my acting classes on my own in my mid twenties, living in New York by myself. So I won't go down the rabbit hole of all my trauma, but I just didn't get nurtured in the same way that I think some of my cis actor counterparts did. Mm. And, um, everybody's journey is different. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not huge on blanket statements, but, but I do think I have to be truthful about the fact that it's just been a different journey for me and call it a late bloomer, call it, call it catching up. You know, a lot of trans people I know feel like they're playing catch up on their life, you know, as a, as, as a queer teen, a flaming queen on the playground, you know, fist fighting with the boys and then trying to figure out how you're supposed to exist in this world that really just doesn't make space for you, hmm. um, how you're supposed to thrive, how you're supposed to bloom, how you're supposed to find your voice and then figure out how to get that voice out to the world is all very complicated for queer identities and especially trans people. So... I guess to answer your question is that, yeah, the, 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 the answers are, are trickling in. I mean, it was nice. I woke up this morning to an announcement from Outfest that I'm going to get a, a, a Trailblazer Award, which is really sweet. With um, Shirley MacLaine is receiving an award uh, same night, which is, you know, that's great company. Yeah. Um, and I've had a couple people hit me up about projects they want to develop just in the last, I don't know, like whispers of things, but we're not really allowed to do anything right now. So right, kind of just have to like pump the brakes on all of that. But I think when the strike is over, maybe things will get settled and it'll feel a little bit more like, okay, things are shifting. Hmm. Yeah. I think nurture is a really good word, like in terms of how some people's experience can be coming up in this industry versus other people's mm-hmm. just because of the extremely limited opportunities that this industry has offered to trans actors uh, historically. And, and even now, like what attracted you to acting in the first place? What, what made you want to do it, especially with the challenges I'm sure you knew were in front of you to pursuing a career. So I found acting when I was having a rock bottom moment in my mid twenties, um, you know, it's, uh, I won't go into all of it because it's kind of heavy. I might save that for the book, but I knew I was at a place in my life when I needed a change and I knew I was going to have to invest in myself. I knew that wasn't going to come from outside of me. And a good friend of mine geared me towards an acting class. Um, and so I, I was, scraping up my money and paying for paying for the class myself and bounced around to different acting studios in New York. And it 
kind of revealed itself early on that I was a little bit of a natural at it. Um, I think that's just due to this really rich life that I've lived as a trans person. And, uh, and then just figuring out how to harness all of those experiences and um, put them up and through the text and get control of the instrument. And it took me, it took me a couple of years to kind of master that, but I had enough compliments along the way to understand that acting was like choosing me too. I mean, I was kind of like the teacher's pet at one point and <laughs> I was like, okay, maybe there's something, maybe there's a, something here, you know, maybe right. acting is picking me back, which is a good feeling to have. Um, I feel like it was one of the few things that chose me as well. And then, yeah, I, I, I didn't book anything until like 2013 and I was sleeping on an air mattress at the time at a friend's house. I was technically homeless and I was getting ready. I was thinking about moving back to Dayton, Ohio, which is where I grew up. And, um, I got this audition and it was my first real TV gig on a real show, you know, audition. Everything else was kind of like commercial auditions. And this is like the first real shot at something with lines on primetime and whatever. And, and and I booked it and I thought, oh, okay, maybe it's not time to to give up. And I'm just I'm glad I stayed the course. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. You've done a few things that we can't talk about here, but yeah, I, I bring them up like vaguely to say that, you know, flash forward to Monica, which is very much an independent movie. And what's interesting to me about that is like the kinds of the kind of acting you get to do in a movie like this with a director who has a very specific vision and you're, you know, acting opposite Patricia Clarkson, which I will ask you more about in a minute. Um, But just stepping into this kind of role, how did you find yourself challenged and maybe, you know, invigorated by getting to be in that kind of film? Mm. Well, 
there wasn't any room for phoning anything in because the mm-hmm. you know the the framing even of the film it was just so tight. Yep. It really favored the performance, but it also left zero room for anything false. And I appreciated that. It was a it was a challenge that I welcomed. I had a very gentle director, Andrea Pilato, who was amazing and kind and that in itself is the biggest gift an actor can get because you feel held and you feel like you can explore and your your instrument for me anyway my instrument feels freest most free when um when you have that in a director and so i think monica it was so internal and there was so much going on even even the scenes where there wasn't a lot of dialogue for her there was still so much going on in her head so i was trying my best to kind of honor all of that and um she demanded it um she she was very um had this quiet strength that i mm-hmm. definitely identify with in a lot of ways but yeah it was it was a beautiful cathartic piece of art that i'm i feel so blessed that i finally got to kind of express my express myself in that way um in a way that i think I think people are resonating with it because so much was said without it being said, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. it's at times a very dialogue light movie. And mm-hmm. the entire premise of Monica is your character coming home to her mother, who is forgetful. She is struggling with dementia. She's uh, yeah. dying and she doesn't recognize you because, you know, when you left home, you looked very different. Um, yes. It's very loaded. And I, I'm just curious what it was like to sit in those moments where there isn't a lot of dialogue and you have these incredibly emotional scenes to play. Sitting in those moments was, I mean, I I love those moments. As an actor, I love to sit there and work from the gut like that and being able to do it across from <laughs> a, a woman like Patricia Clarkson, who's had this five-decade career, you know, Academy nominee, it was such an honor. And I I felt so grateful. And we were pretty clear on who these characters were. Um, but I also knew that there was room to explore when I got to set with, with her because um, we work in similar ways. And um, Andrea does too. And um, it just was kind of cohesive like that. It just, it was uh, beautiful and raw. And um, yeah, there were several, there were several scenes where we would, so, you know, after, after they called cut, you just look around the room and the crew, the crew would be in tears. Um, mm. So it was very special and it was hot. It was the Cincinnati summer heat, and we were we were in this house with all this all this feeling floating through the hot air, and it was it was really intense, but in a beautiful way. Hmm. So, in terms of that alignment you mentioned with Patricia, how did you find her as as a scene partner, and what what kinds of alignment did you find in terms of the way you work? Again, just uh, the fact that she. You know, we I, I don't think either one of us over-prepped for these 
roles. Yeah. It's good to, you know, do what you need to do before you come to set. However, there's something to be said for letting the wheels fall off and being able to do that, having the confidence to do that. And I think she and I both are willing to do that and uh, explore. And so uh, that there's like a steadiness to her that I loved. And, and um, if that makes sense, it's kind of mm-hmm. like uh, watching her in between takes even. I was really impressed. It reminded me of the same feelings I felt when I worked with um, Judith Light for for many seasons. Um, on but an unnamed streaming series. On, an un, on some struck work. <laughs> yes. Or, yeah, unnamed stuff. Um, yes. But just, you, you, you know, when you're around a caliber of, of, of actor like that, you you get to take away these little gifts of things that you can add into your own arsenal or your own toolkit as an actor. And if they're not really things that you can be told verbally, it's kind of things you just have to witness, little little things. Um, again, just like the steadiness or, uh, you know, seeing how she just focuses focuses on one spot in between in between takes and just like doesn't doesn't really waver it's just this kind of like imaginary shield that goes up around her and uh and it was really beautiful to watch Hmm. i believe you're also uh an executive producer on this movie and you know this is to me a really good example of the worth and the difficulty of getting indie films made right now. I think you auditioned, you know, first audition in 2017, right, for this? I did extensively, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> I had to like, fight for this one. <laughs> as someone who was both behind the scenes in that, you know, auditioned so long ago, like, what did you learn about this part of the industry and being a part of it and the amount of perseverance, really, that is needed to get these movies made? My goodness. Uh, indie film is... Like you said, a fight. It is a labor of love. Um, I'm constantly still, uh, I feel like I'm still fighting for it to get the same yeah. love from the trades, you know, that the bigger films get. I mean, mm-hmm. we our Oscar campaign started last week. Nobody announced it, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, and I'm seeing all these other announcements go out for these larger films, and that's wonderful. But I just want us to be treated the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to level the playing field and it's very hard to do. It's, it's, it's just maddening sometimes. Um, but it's been nice to see uh, IFC step up a little and, and do that, you know, Academy flyer and blast that they did to the entire Academy. I think I'm allowed to talk about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that was really cool just to see an official for your consideration flyer go out to the whole Academy was I mean, it made me feel like, oh, finally, like they they understand there's something here. This film is special. It deserves some TLC. It deserves uh, eyeballs on it. That's all we're asking is for people to watch it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, indie film is tough. Um, I think we need to constantly think about this. Like as an industry, we need to constantly think about how do we preserve indie film and not let it fall by the wayside because so much of so much of our industry is about money and power and influence and who's got the best publicist and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. which it, it takes away from the art, in my opinion. But 
here we are and we will fight the good fight because this story is important and I have enough I have enough messages and letters from trans <laughs> people around the world to tell me that it's worth it's worth seeing through and and you know it's a marathon and not a sprint and we got to just we got to show up because this this film I know has impacted lives in a in a positive way and this year feels like one to me where films of this scale, independent films, films that don't have that huge, you know, marketing budget probably should be getting that support because it's not unrelated to the strike and the things that we're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. It's, uh, <laughs> it's eerily, uh, current, I guess. And, uh, yeah, I, I was talking with Annabella Sierra uh, about, um, how just all of it, you know, award season and um, how it was back in the day. And mm-hmm. she told me, she told me a story about how Meryl Streep used to just go to the awards functions, like in her own dress. And like, mm-hmm. it was like the glitz and the glam and the campaigning of it all was not nearly as prominent as it is today. Right. And she mentioned a certain someone, um, who I think now might be in jail or is in jail. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Who kind of shifted, you know, shifted everything for everybody. And um, yeah. And that's when the game changed. It was just like campaigning became, it became a thing. And then, you know, designers were getting in the game and the glitz and the glam of it all, it became very like political. Mm -hmm. And, and so it was interesting to talk with her about that. Um, I guess it was probably the late eighties, nineties when that all of that shit, that nineties when that shift happened. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's all relevant, right? I mean, also in, in your case, the Academy's history is kind of, I would, you could say disturbing, you could say depressing that there hasn't been mm. an openly uh, trans actor nominated. Of course, Elliot Page has been nominated. Um, but do you feel in your case, a degree of pressure walking into that kind of scenario in a campaign when it truly has never happened before? Yeah, I, I mean, it is pressure. It's good pressure. It's it's similar to how I felt going to Venice, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Venice. Talk about glitz and glamour. <laughs> yeah, I think, they're, I think they're on their, eight, what is it, the 80th? Uh, it's the oldest. That's all I it's know. It's <laughs> the oldest. I mean, I think it's, I think they took a break for a period of time. So it's like actually 90 something years old, but I think they're on their 80th, 80th uh, festival or something. Uh, So anyway, they hadn't had a trans lead um, in their 79 festivals as of last year and, and in in main competition. And, um, and so there was some pressure there and, and yeah, it was um, interesting I just, I, I do, I feel like though we do have to knock on that glass ceiling and I feel like we, mm-hmm. you know, trans, trans people, in spite of what the public may think, we're not new. I mean, we've, we've been around since the beginning of history. It's just that our history gets left out. <laughs> yep. And if you take a moment to look, to look up trans history, you'll see that we've always been here and, and deserving and, and it can just, it's a lot of times it's, a, it's about access lack of access for trans people. You know, our, our lot in life is just different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do feel, I do feel some pressure, but for me, again, it's more like I've worked really hard to get to this point 
I'm going to continue to show up for myself by any means and just try to stay the course. <laughs> That's what I keep telling myself every day. Yeah. I would hope that there was all, there's also some some pride and, you know, being a part of that Venice where you are there with a great movie among like I think that Venice had what Kate Blanchett Brendan oh, yeah. Fraser, you know, oh, it was a yeah. pretty... Oh, yeah. Blanchett was there for Tar. Brendan Fraser was there. Um, yeah, it was... There was so many amazing films last year. It just... Um, it was... It was a dream in a lot of ways. Um, and then to get that 11 and a half minute standing ovation at the oldest theater for a competitive film, uh, what is it, the Solera Grande, or I mm-hmm. think I'm saying that right, it this historic venue getting to walk that carpet and all of that was just very validating to my you know me and 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 my craft and yeah it changes you forever when a room of a thousand people stand up and clap for you for that long and I I don't know I left with something that was just you can't you can't put a value on it I left there with something that really filled my cup. So I hang on to that. Like I, I keep going back to that moment when I, mm. when I do get down or when I feel discouraged. So yeah, it was, it was, an, it was, again, it was an honor to be there with like Kate Blanchett and all of those other amazing actors that I've watched for years. So it's wonderful. Mm. Was that the first time you'd, I imagine, with seen it with an audience? Yes, actually it was. I, I had seen cuts of it and we'd, right. you know, given notes and actually fought for a scene or two to get put back in. And um, yeah, the webcam scene, actually, that one was one mm. that I kind of fought to get back in. Um, but that was my first time watching with an audience. And I was blown away by the, when the lights came up, I just, well, there was this eerie, like quiet, because there's no music when the movie ends. It's just, it's just yeah. dead. And so it's dark and it's quiet. And then the lights came up and then the applause happened. And then they just kept clapping and clapping and clapping. And then I started crying and then they clapped some more. And I was like, okay, oh, wow, this is a, this is a special day. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. The, the thing I really love about your performance in this movie is the way you put it earlier, that, that quiet strength that you communicate. Um, and you said you, you feel that in yourself what about this character did you really connect to? Because it did feel watching it that there was a real connection between performer and, and character in this case. Oh, yeah. Um, well, like, well, with a lot of trans people, I definitely had my own journey with my blood family and yep. my mother. And um, thankfully, we're in an amazing place right now. So I don't like to kind of dredge up the past, but, uh, you know, there was definitely some hard years there and some figuring out and some, I've used the word estrangement. Um, but, uh, and that's, uh, (laughs) 
very unique kind of pain to feel that with, with, with your parent, um, Mm -hmm. to not know how this was going to end up. Right. Um, but in the end, love won for us. And, uh, I like to think that love won for Monica and Eugenia as well. It just, uh, they, you know, they happened to lose 20 years or whatever, which is hard, but I deeply related to the fracture portion in, uh, in some ways, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of protective of like yeah, of course. My, my mom and, and, and all of that, but, um, because I know, I know that she's always loved me. Even when we had hard times, I know that I knew, I just, something told I knew deep down, no, I know she loves me. Um, even if we are not on the best of terms. Um, mm-hmm. and I was right. Uh, in the, in the end I was, you know, I was right. So I think there was that. And then there's, you know, just being this, being this woman who has lived this trans life. I mean, I was, I guess what you would consider non-binary in the nineties in high school, you know, mm-hmm. rocking, you know, women's hairstyles and I had long nails and I was wearing some boy clothes and some girls clothes. And, you know, it was just this mm-hmm. flaming queen doing my own thing <laughs> in the Rust Belt, Dayton, Ohio. Like they didn't know what to do with me. So I up and left yeah. in New York as soon as I could. So I deeply, I deeply resonate with having to go make your own life for yourself and, find the the woman that you are and you know i i have my own history with sex work and and let's let's be honest that's what that's what monica does to stay afloat you know she she hasn't had the same path in life and it takes a lot to get up out of that to get up yes. out of that out of those trenches it's not not you know People don't fall into sex work because they want to, at least most of the people that I know, and I know quite a few um, that that have had to do that, that kind of survival sex work. Um, Mm -hmm. It's because of circumstance. And uh, like nine, I would say 90% of the time it's because of circumstance. So I think just seeing how strong she was, again, using what resources she had, which in her case was her body. And the fact that men probably exoticize her as a trans woman. Mm-hmm. And um, just also, there's that one scene of her trying to find joy when she's dancing around the room and getting mm-hmm. ready to go out and hit the town. And understanding what that rebellious joy is as a trans woman in a world that feels like it's always caving in on you. And sometimes you just got to throw on the music and dance and get out and throw on a dress and I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a, also a universal theme that a lot of people can identify with. Obviously we have to like find the joy mm-hmm. in our lives to keep going. You have to laugh through the pain. Um, what's that poem, a tear and a smile. I think it's Khalil Gibran, um, mm. get through life with a tear and a smile. And that's, you know, the, the duality of it all is just something that I feel like rings true for so many people. Yeah. I think a uh, a lovely metaphor for the for the movie too. Um mm-hmm. And I yeah, I think about you advocating for that camming scene to stay in there and I think that is a testament to how much you knew that character, right? Yeah, I knew I knew they were hesitant about it and it wasn't in the first cut and I thought okay, so there was another there was another scene at the beginning of the movie where um spoiler um there's a man who visits her and and I do 
turn a trick with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that got cut. Uh, and so, you know, all you see is, is her massaging him and, and you can yeah. kind of like piece it together if you want to. Maybe some people did, maybe some people didn't. You know, this movie doesn't spoon feed anything to anybody, which is part of why I love it. But, uh, there was more, there was an extended cut of that scene that, that also got taken out. And then when I saw that the webcam scene was gone too, I thought, well, they need to know how this woman is surviving, how she has survived since she was kicked out at 16. And now here she is as this fully bloomed woman. It's just so important to know, I think, that other layer of her when when she has the blonde bob wig on and she's kind of in character, you know, pulling her coin. And then she has Mm -hmm. to go and run into the next room and hold her, spoiler alert, hold her mother um, with the same hands that she turns tricks with and rub her back. And, you know, there's that duality again that just we are not one thing. And there's so much, there's so much that's misunderstood about the trans experience and about sex workers. And and so I was happy that, that they were able to include include that. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back again on Thursday. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich and David. David Ganfield 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.